from the very inception of the uh, church, we, we studied the book of Acts, the devil uh, wasted no time to try to either destroy the church or at least diminish its ability uh, to function within the culture. Uh, and he's not stopped since then. If you do, a, I did it years ago, uh, but if you do an analysis of the devil's strategy in the book of Acts, uh, you will see that he, I'll, I'll eventually get to First John in case you're new, wondering what is he talking about? Um, because uh, what, what uh, you find in Dr. Luke, what he wrote about Acts is uh, the, the devil's strategy vacillates between two things, uh, external attacks against the church to try to diminish or destroy it, or internal attacks, uh, which are most insidious. And so uh, I'll just give you a few uh, ideas of how that uh, particular motif is developed in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, so the church was founded in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Uh, it, by, when you get to chapter four, uh, you find uh, that Satan, or also known as the dragon, uh, he ex attacks externally first. So uh, Peter and John are arrested for preaching about the Messiah. Uh, that was his first major attack against the church. Uh, in Acts chapter five, verses one to 11, the devil shifts tactics and works through a wealthy couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who promise to give their uh, property that they're gonna sell to the church. And they decide once they see how much they made off of the investment, they decided not to give it to God. Uh, you do not lie to God. And so you, you all know what happened to them, right? Do you? Yeah, that's why I say you don't wanna be them because the Lord took both of them out uh, as, a, as an illustration that you don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that was an internal attack. In Acts chapter five, verses 17 to 24, the dragon attacks externally. Uh, the Jewish high priest at this point uh, imprisons some of the apostles because uh, he's jealous because more people are going to the apostles than they are going to the Jewish authorities. Uh, the devil uh, used that and then he didn't uh, keep doing that particular method. He then switches when you get to Acts chapter six uh, and he attacks again internally. Um, when you had one group of Gentile Christians, they felt slighted at mealtime because Jewish believers, you know, who's getting the most food, who's getting served first, and a huge internal fight, uh, which would never happen at church. Uh, and then it, the devil switches again and in Acts chapter 7 and 8, and he attacks externally. Uh, eventually, uh, he has Stephen uh, martyred, uh, and Saul, who becomes Paul, uh, is holding the garments of the executioners and watches in glee as they take out Stephen this converted Jew. So you, I'll stop right there. You can go throughout the whole book of Acts and see this motif vacillating back and forth. Uh, if you, I wrestled in high school some. Uh, this is kind of a wrestling motif because uh, when you're wrestling somebody, you're trying to find the weak point and you exploit it. So you try this. If that doesn't work, then you try that. If that doesn't work, then you try this. Uh, and you try that until the match is over. So it's kind of like that. Uh, the devil's constantly at work. Uh, Peter tells us he's a roaring lion that walks around seeking whom he can devour. And he wants to destroy the church. It's a problem to his system. Uh, and he wants to at least diminish its ability to operate powerfully in the culture. Uh, but we have the Lord with us. And the Lord said, the gates of hell shall not what? Prevail against the church. So we have the Lord's promise. But the, this doesn't stop the devil. Uh, and so uh, I would say between those different methods, the external and the internal attacks, after pastoring a church for 32 years, I would say wh which one of the most difficult? The internal attacks. Those are the most difficult to, to process as a leader because, well, a variety of reasons. You don't anticipate Christians internally attacking Christians. That's a hard one to follow uh, because you give them the benefit of the doubt. They're innocent until proven guilty, blah, blah, blah. And then when they do things, it's really hard to comprehend, like Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and so uh, churches, uh, uh, you know, have all kinds of issues. You're facing the culture that's arrayed against the church. And then you have church people arrayed against each other inside the church. 
which should not be, as we've seen as we've studied chapter three about the call to brotherly love. Uh, and so people fight over church, or a church over all kinds of things, and they're usually not major issues. Uh, when I was in California uh, two weeks ago doing a, a, a wedding for a, uh, a friend of mine, in fact, my friend, uh, he and his wife were my first wedding when I was a new pastor. Uh, and I then did the wedding for their son, uh, who was now, he's playing pro basketball in Italy. They're an Italian family. Uh, and uh, it was funny. It was kind of an emotional thing doing the wedding in the same cathedral I did his mom and dad's wedding. Then to see the son there was really awesome. Uh, but uh, as I was there, I was talking to friends because I was, you know, in, in that city for 20 years. So I know a zillion people. Uh, so one of my friends was you know, talking to me about the church that they attend. Uh, and I'm like, hey, how's it going there? Because you used to attend my church when I was there. And now you're at this other church. Uh, and he said, he told me the church it was. And I'm like, oh, I, I know that church. And it's, it's built along a river and it's beautiful. And it's on a little hill. And the windows of the side of the church overlook the river as it's flowing by. Imagine during worship. I mean, it's awesome. And he goes, well, the river is a huge issue for our church. Really? He goes, oh, a huge fight over, over the river. Huh? Really? It, like what? He goes, well, there's one contingent in the church wants uh, the blinds open during church so they can see the river. <laughs> and the other half wants the blinds closed so they're not distracted from the word of God. Huh? He, the, he said, you think this is worth arguing over? Uh, no. You know, but that's what they're fighting over. See how the devil operates? It's like over the river. You think that's the most major issue? And I don't think so, but that's what happens. And so uh, when you look at the devil's tactics, be, be mindful uh, that he always attacks the church externally and internally. And of the two, the internal are the hard, hard ones to deal with, but you have to deal with them to maintain unity. Um, so when John is looking at his book, First John, I told you we get there, chapter three, uh, John in his 90s is dealing with the seven churches in Asia Minor who are under attack internally by Gnostics. Uh, false teachers who've infiltrated the churches uh, with false doctrine about who Jesus is uh, and how a person is saved and all this stuff. But they didn't come in with a great fanfare. They kind of snuck in and began to slowly teach their false doctrine to turn the people toward their progressive view of theology. And anybody that doesn't buy their view of theology is then ostracized and diminished because, well, you're not heading where the spirit is leading us. And so they destroyed these churches uh, and they were uh, power grabs is what they were. And enter John. Uh, John, the aged pastor, steps in and says, on my watch, that ain't happening. You're not destroying the church internally like this. And so he steps in in 1 John and writes this letter to, um, not really as a polemic against the Gnostic false teachers, although it's there built into the text, especially as you get to chapter 4 next week when we get there about testing the spirits of who you're listening to. Um, but, but he's there to kind of mend the the church that's been broken over the division that's happened from these internal people that have created strife. And so as he does this, remember he's 90 something years old, so he, he, can, he can trail off into any direction that he wants to, which makes it difficult to follow him because he's just an old guy who's just talking. And so uh, it, it makes it interesting when you study chapter three, because it's like, he's here, he's there, he's here, he's there, he's there. But basically what he's talking about, as we've seen, is he's covering the motif or the main idea of what does bold belief look? What does it look like? Bold belief look like in very bad times. That was the culture in which he lived. And so we have covered nine things so far. Uh, it's been several weeks that we've spent on covering what he talks about here. We've covered nine uh, different ideas of what bold belief looks like in trying times. We're gonna add two more to the list as we close out this particular chapter. Uh, number 10, 
what does bold belief look like? Uh, well, it is naturally sacrificial. That's what bold belief is like. It's naturally sacrificial. He says in verse 16, we as Christians know by this, love, love by this. Uh, how do we know love? Well, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And then we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. He just got through talking about brotherly love. And, but he's not finished talking about it because this is the main issue inside church is do you really love each other? I mean, that, that church that's fighting over the blinds, open, blinds, closed. Can you imagine they probably open and close them during the service, you know? Um, <laughs> fighting over that. It's like, do you really love each other? Uh, and so he, he tells us here again, we need to talk about love as it's related to sacrifice. So we are commanded to love our, the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, first greatest commandment, correct? Second greatest commandment, and love your neighbor as yourself. So does that include non-Christians? Yeah, it includes anybody. So the, great, the second greatest commandment covers believers and non-believers. John is talking about love with inside the church. I mean, he's a pastor talking to his seven churches. So he's saying, if you love anybody, you should really love Christian brothers and sisters. One person believes this, amen, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> rest of you can pray about it, but... Um, so you have to stop and ask yourself, okay, this is the divine command for us to love each other. And he's gonna give us the model of what love looks like. That's gonna be Jesus. But as you look at this in the next few minutes here, as we look at love for brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to ask the question, are my words and my actions full of love to other people? Are they, did you hear what I said? Are my words and my actions full of love? Do they express love? Um, and you think about Jesus, he's our model because that's what he says in verse 16. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid his life down for us. Uh, Jesus uh, illustrated love to us. Uh, how did he do it? He did it through supreme sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. That's what it is. Uh, think about the Lord and how he loved us sacrificially. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He willingly died for his enemies according to Paul's uh, argument in Romans 5, 6 to 9. We were his enemies. Uh, his death for enemies gives them the potential to be his friends when they trust him as savior. So you go from being an enemy of Christ to trusting him as savior, and now you're his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. Uh, his death gave us the potential to move from spiritual death, which is how we were born, which Paul talks about in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Uh, it gives you the potential to move from spiritual death to spiritual life. So at the moment of conversion, when Jesus becomes your savior, you just went from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. How many, I would say in the last year, got saved here at church? Anybody? It's hard for me to see with all the stage lights. So we're all Christians here. Awesome. Okay, great. But when you got saved, this is what happened. You passed from death to life. Uh, became a, a, you weren't a son or a daughter of Christ. Now you are a son or a daughter of Christ. Uh, and this all came about by his supreme sacrifice. He died in our place. Uh, unthinkable is what he, what he did. It says here that he died uh, in, be, in behalf of us. He laid his life down for us. That's substitutionary atonement is what that is. Uh, the particular preposition, can prepositions matter in Greek? Do they not? They matter in English too. Uh, this particular preposition, huper in, in Greek, uh, is, a, is a word that is used for somebody doing something in the place of somebody else. So who should have hung on the tree? Oh, well, I should have hung on the tree. You should have hung on the tree. But who hung on the tree as our sin sacrifice? The only one capable, Jesus did. See, that's huper, that's in behalf of. That word is translated in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, uh, by the word ransom. It says, who, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom 
for all, the testimony born at the proper time. The word ransom is the word, there's a preposition, huper, but, it, but it's translated ransom here because he's telling you, what did Jesus do when he died in your place? Well, he paid the ransom for sin. What was the cost of sin before God, the Holy Father? That his son would lay his perfect life down for your sin. That was the cost to redeem you. And so he says, this is the epitome of love that Jesus would leave the glory of heaven, go to the cross and bear your sin when he didn't have to and die in your place. How could you not want him as your Lord? He stands ready to make you a son or a daughter. Again, I would say, what are you waiting for? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, another use of the, of the preposition, it says, uh, he made him uh, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he, the father, made him the son who knew no sin because he was sinless to be sin. Uh, why? Well, that we might have the opportunity to become righteous. See, you can't make yourself righteous. You cannot be. You can name yourself the righteous brothers and it will not make you righteous. Uh, the only way to get righteous is to get the righteousness of Jesus. And the way, only way you get his righteousness is you bow at the cross. All your works, all your rituals, all your prayers, all your tithes, offerings, whatever, whatever they're done for. But if they're not done from the heart of faith, they're just works that you do. They don't garner the favor of God. His favor is with his son. And when you come to his son in faith, his face smiles on you and he just ransomed you. He, he just saved you. But it says here that he who knew no sin became sin. So Jesus was sinless. That's why he could bear your sin, my sin on the cross. But it says here in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he did this that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is called a henna clause in Greek. Uh, it's either purpose or result. Those are your two grammatical options. Um, you could pick either one of these. He died uh, with the result uh, that uh, we might become or for the purpose that either one theologically works. Um, either way, it's all designed. His death was designed to give you his righteousness, but you have to ask him. You have to ask him. Uh, it's awesome when you, when you lead somebody to Christ, when you watch them move from being lost to being saved. Uh, it, it's an amazing moment because uh, you realize what happened, uh, that they just now became spiritually alive for the first time in their life. So he who knew no sin bore our sin. It should have been our sin that we bore, but he bore it for us because he loved us. Uh, it says in verse 16, we know love by this that he laid his life down for us, then what's the cause-effect relationship between what Jesus did? The cause-effect is this. Uh, because of what he did, the cause, the effect is, we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. Notice he says we ought to, because he knows us, because we have limitations. Well, I ain't doing anything for them. I mean, after what they did to me, eh, no way. You know what I mean? The carnal man comes out, you have one? Are you totally holy? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, he it's, it's, it says, well, you ought to lay down your lives for the brethren. Now, no man knows, uh, like if you're in the military, when you go to boot camp and you train and weapons training, all things that you do, you don't know in a war footing exactly how you're going to function, correct? Nobody's in the military? Yeah. You, you do not know. Uh, you're a Marine. Uh, you have no idea what you're going to do when you're under fire. Uh, you hope you're going to, your training kicks in and you, you function as, you're, as you were trained to do. You could apply that to being a Christian. You do not know as a Christian how you're going to function when you're under spiritual fire. That if you really, would I really step into the arena uh, and, and when the lions are coming out in the place of another Christian? I mean, am I going to leave the audience and go, hey, choose me, 
you know, take that mom out of there, I'll, I'll step in her place. Who, who, who could say you could do that? But he says, we ought to be so in love with other Christians that if we had to lay our life down for them, we would step in their place. That's what he's saying. Now, in, at this particular time, they knew about Roman persecution. Nero uh, started the persecution in AD 67. Eventually, he's gonna kill Paul. Uh, Domitian later, uh, Emperor Domitian in AD 81, uh, started uh, another round of Roman persecution. Uh, later, uh, after John uh, exits the, uh, the, the world stage and goes to heaven, in 108 AD, Trajan starts a persecution again. And it's during Trajan's persecution that Ignatius, who replaced the, the apostle Peter as the leader in the church in Antioch, uh, he heads through Asia Minor uh, on his way to Rome where he is executed. But on his way to execution, he stops and he ministers to the churches in Asia Minor that John is talking to here, and he encourages them. Have you ever met a really godly person that you go to to encourage them because they're in a bad situation and they encourage you? Do you know what I'm talking about? I have been there a bunch of times. I've gone in to an aged saint that's dealing with cancer or whatever, and I've gone in to zero in, to encourage them, read scriptures, pray with them, and I, and I, and I know what they're like. They always encourage you and bless you when their faith in death itself. And I walk out going, they did it to me again. You know? and, but, but that was Ignatius. He's, he's facing his execution, but he's like, I'm gonna bless those churches in Asia Minor who've struggled with persecution and, and tell them to be strong while I'm heading to my death. What a man. So they're familiar with laying their lives down. But John's a realist. So when you look at verse 17, he's going to say, basically, not, we're probably not in our lifetime gonna be placed in a situation where you have to lay your life down for another Christian. That's probably, I mean, it could happen, but it's probably not gonna happen. So he says in verse 17, let me break it down at your level. So he says, whoever has the world's good, speaking of Christians, and beholds his brother, Christian brother, in need, and closes his heart against them, he said, I have a question. How does the love of God abide in him? He's not saying whether the person's saved or not. That's not what he's talking about. Because we know Christians come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? Some are super in love with Jesus. Some are there. And then some are like, eh, they're not there yet. And so he says, I realize how Christians are wired. And he said, you know, you might not lay your life down for somebody, but hey, if you possess the things that are the sustenance of life, and if you part with those and give them to another Christian, you're showing them that you love them. But if you have things that create sustenance in life and you don't give it to a brother or sister in Christ, how is that a, an illustration that you really love Jesus no matter what you say? Uh, think about it. Uh, your sacrifice might not be your life. It might be the things that you have. You follow me? And so when you give a struggling family money for gas because gas is so cheap now, um, but a family who just can't, they can't keep up. I mean, the, the, the price has well, kind of come down a little bit, but it's still high. But I mean, a young family with a lot of, you know, living from check to check, and a Christian family, they just, they, how are they gonna actually make it to work? But if you're older and have a little bit more funds available to you and you can absorb uh, the inflation, et cetera, but when you step in to help them with gas for their car as a Christian family, you have just sacrificed for them. You've sacrificed for them. Uh, when you loan a, a person your car, because theirs is in the shop, it's gonna be in shop for quite a while, and you, you loan them your car, uh, or maybe you give them a car. But whatever it is that you have, when you see their need and you meet their need, then you have just done what John is talking about. You've loved your brother. 
But to watch them struggling in a need and going, oh, that is just too bad for your family. Oh, you can't get to work? Or you're having to put all of your, your charges that you're incurring as a family on charge cards because you don't have any more cash? But when you step in to then help them, uh, you have then been the hands and feet of Christ to them. Uh, is that you? Is that you? Do you have ability, see a need, and then help them? That suggests that you pay attention to people's needs, which means you know people, and you know what they're facing, and you help them. That shows the love of Christ to them. In verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Uh, the, the word there, but, B-U-T, that is an adversative in Greek. There's two ways to say that in, in Greek, uh, an adversative. Uh, one is a, a minor adversative, one's a major adversative. This is a major one, it's the, it's the word Allah, which means this is radical. So he says, don't love with just words, do something about it. You follow me? He's telling you, do something. I mean, put your faith in action. Uh, think about Jesus, he's your, he's your model of what love looks like. Um, when they ran out of wine at a wedding, what'd he do? Well, I don't drink wine, I, you know, it all tastes the same to me, I've told you that before. And it, it makes me tired. It's like, why would you wanna drink it? But I'm sure there are people here who drink it, I'll pray for you. But <laughs> the first miracle that Jesus did is he made some of the best wine ever hit the planet. You know, he could have just said, hey, that's too bad, mom. Hey, they ran out of wine. Yeah, I got other things to do today than make wine. You know, what'd he do? He made wine. And they're like, you saved the best for last? It's amazing. Um, when a layman man in John 5 needed new legs, what did Jesus do? Hey, that is too bad for you. I am the creator. I made your legs. I can give you a new pair. So what did he do? Gave the guy new legs. Uh, and when the 5,000 are hungry, when they're listening to Jesus teach, because he goes on and on, and you're out there forever on the hillside, not like today, I'll release you so you can go early and eat. But in John 6, you know, the people are hungry. What did he do? He took five barley loaves and two small fish and just kept reaching in the bag and just kept multiplying it and just kept producing until everybody was fed and they had baskets left over. He could have looked at them and said, I am above making bread and fish. No, he's like, no, you have a need? I could totally help you with lunch. We don't need Chick-fil-A, we could do this. Uh, John chapter nine, a man born blind, desperately needed eyesight, you know, and what he do? I'll give you new eyes. See, that's Jesus. That's why people flock to him. He saw needs, he met needs. So what's John say? Be like Jesus. If you see a need, meet a need. So what, I was sitting there, like, wonder what, if Jesus had a motto, what was his motto be? Uh, here's two options for mottos. You know what a motto is, right? Uh, I've got it, so I give it. Did you hear me? This could be your motto. I've got it, so I give it. Can you say this? I've got it. So I give it. You sound so motivated. I've, <laughs> pretend you're on a football team. I've got it. So I'm going to give it. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get you pumped up. Uh, motto two. Uh, I love with works, not with words. Did you? I love with works, not with words, right? You say this? I love with works. Not with words. And that's, that's how you know the love of Christ is working in your life, is if you see a need and you go meet a need. So I have to ask you, whose need in this body do you know about that when we leave today and you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to do after the sermon? 
What are you supposed to do? Where are you getting quiet all of a sudden? You're supposed to alleviate that need. Whatever that need is, you do it. Now, now I have some parameters, okay? Don't go meet a need and then put it on Instagram. Man, you're not gonna believe what my wife and I did. Awesome. And then 5,000 people, don't do that. Don't broadcast what you are going to do, right? Because then you have to wonder about your motivation. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6 about doing that kind of thing. He says, when you, therefore you give your alms, don't sound a trumpet before you, da, 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 Instagram, Facebook. Um, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, they may be honored by, so they can be honored by men. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? that your alms may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. Don't broadcast what you're gonna do. Do it in secret. Don't even let the person, you don't even have to, to let them know who it came from, anonymously, whatever, but you're just meeting the need. One brother in Christ helps another brother in Christ. One sister in Christ helps another sister in Christ. You know, just do something. Uh, I have a friend of mine um, who found out that his, uh, one of his good friends was losing his home. Uh, business was going south. He wasn't getting contracts. Things were tough. So he was, he was losing his home. So my friend who has a great deal of money, uh, was talking to me and, and I said, well, what did you do with, you know, your, your buddy situation? It sounds really sad. He said, I bought his house. Uh, I have a mortgage. <laughs> you know, he started laughing at me. He's like, yeah, right. You got a job, you know? Uh, but, uh, but it's that kind of thing. It's like, you might not be able to, you know, like I could never buy somebody their house. Some did, some do. But it could be something small. But it's whatever the need is. Well, you either loan that, whatever it is, you give that to them to bless them. But whose need do you know about? Because my friend could have said, wow, that's too bad, Larry, for you. Oh, wow, you're gonna be homeless here pretty soon. You're gonna lose your home. That's tragic. No, my friend said, God's blessed me immensely. And so I'm gonna use my monies to bless my friend. That's a friend. You know, what kind of friend are you? Um, now, John knew about the giving drills. He throws in verse 20, uh, some more insight. Verse 20, he says, uh, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. What is that cryptic saying about? Well, he, he's telling you, your heart can condemn you when you give. How's that work? Well, you get motivated this morning. I need, I need, to, I need to meet needs. I'm being too stingy, too, too selfish, need to meet needs. And so you go and you give. And then that's when your conscience kicks in. You know, Jiminy Cricket, your little conscience kicks in. And it, what's it tell you? You should have done more. You held back. You really, that's all you gave? That's when the conscience kicks in. What's he telling you? He says, if you're giving from a heart of, of gratitude and love for Jesus, uh, and you're, you're going out and sacrificially doing it, and, you're, and your conscience kicks in and it's, it's kind of condemning you, he says, God's greater than your heart. What's that mean? God knows your heart. He knows why you did what you did, so relax. You're not gonna lose reward. Just relax and enjoy the fact that, that God sees why you did what you did. And yeah, it could always have been more, could have been more radical, but he's just happy with the fact that you stepped out. That's the Lord. Do you love brothers and sisters in Christ? Who are you going to love on? Point two, as we close, bold belief in tough times is powerful in prayer. Verse 21 he says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What does that mean? That means if you're not the guy whose heart's condemning you all the time, but you are sure in your faith, you're a mature Christian, that you are giving like you're supposed to give to other brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, if that's you, then you have what? 
confidence. The other time that word is used in the book is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, where he talks about confidence when Jesus appears. You know, like if Jesus came in the rapture today at one o'clock, da-da-da-da, trumpet sounds, and you're like, I am ready to go. Are you ready? Yeah. I'm ready. Some Christians are gonna go, uh-oh, I'm not quite ready. You know, I've kind of got some sin going on in my life. Lord, could you like give me a couple minutes, you know? Um, he says, if you are a Christian living like you should, loving brothers and sisters in Christ through sacrifice, you, by definition, have confidence before God. Why? Because you're living like you're supposed to. So that when you stand before him toe to toe, you can say, Lord, I, I live sacrificially toward the body of Christ like you called me to. And the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so he says, if you live like that as a mature Christian, which many in our body do, because I see you in action, even the tailgate party last night was an illustration of this. Did you see the tailgate party? You know, all the food that was there? That was sacrificial giving right there, I'm telling you. The wings, the desserts. I mean, I mean you're giving to the body of Christ. Um, but but it's, that, it's that giving. He said, if you're giving as you're supposed to, then verse 22 occurs. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Well, because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, what are his commandments? Well, that we love each other. So if I live in light of, love of loving other Christians in, in, in Christ and I do that, then that impacts my prayer life. Let's put it another way. Your prayer life is only as powerful as your obedience to the commands of Christ. What is his command? That we love each other. What's that mean? If I don't love other Christians, then my prayer life is gonna be compromised. So if you're sitting there thinking, my prayer life isn't really that powerful. Well, how's your love for other believers? That's the question. That's what he's talking about. So if you're a mature believer, he says, you must have a powerful prayer life because that's what he says. Whatever we ask, we receive of him. So what in the world, does that mean whatever? Well, within reason. First uh, John chapter five, we'll get ahead of ourselves. Chapter five, we'll probably get there in 2025 sometime. But first John chapter five, verse 14, here's what he says about prayer. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, he hears us. Uh, these are the parameters. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So you don't waltz into God's presence as a mature Christian and going, I want that, right? No, is that Lord, if it be your will, could I have that? Could bless me with that. So uh, if you're single and dating and there's somebody that you really, really want, it's not going, Lord, I want her. Not like that. No, so if it be your will, her. But I don't want to be out of your will, married to the wrong person. You following me? That, that type of thing. Uh, uh, when it comes to like a job placement, Lord, do you want me here or you want me there? Lord, I want to go, I want to go to Monterey to the language school and suffer for you there at the beach in California. <laughs> what are some less optimal places where God might send you in the military? Everywhere else, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. So he's saying, you know, yeah, you pray within the will of God. I do. You know, I'm a mature Christian. I pray within the will of God. And, and, and you, you tell what God you're praying about, but, it, but it's according to your will, Lord. Because you'd rather be in his will. I mean, think about the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus. What did he do? Not my will, but Lord, Father, may it be your will. See, even the Lord Jesus is praying for the will of the Father. We can't do any better than that. So uh, he's, he's saying you, you can have a powerful prayer life, but it's all related to uh, praying according to the will of God and walking according to the commandments of God. Pretty simple. And know that when, and when the Lord gives you uh, what you're praying for, uh, he might tweak it. 
because uh, we know from Matthew chapter 7 how he operates. Look at verse 9 of uh, Matthew 7. Jesus says, what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf will give him a stone? I mean, what dad does that? Uh, Matt, try that today at lunch with your teenagers. Oh, you want to eat? Here's some rocks out of the garden, you know? Uh, or if he should ask for a fish, he's going to give him a snake. Will he? he that's not, the earthly father doesn't operate like that. Uh, and then he says in verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If an earthly father will give a son who's hungry for lunch because the pastor preached too long and let's get on with it, I need some food, the dad's gonna go, hey, I'll give you absolutely provide food. Where's your mother? <laughs> but, but he's gonna give him something good for him. So how does that, he says, if that's how an earthly dad operates, you think the heavenly father is the opposite of that? See, the devil gets us into your head thinking, man, if I'm praying for this, I know God's gonna totally nuke me again and just ruin my life with doing stuff I really didn't want him. No, you, he's going to bless you. Uh, I, had a, I had a military officer tell me a couple of weeks ago, he, he said, I gotta confess, I did not wanna come to D.C. <laughs> yeah, he said, I didn't wanna come here. He said, I argued with God the whole time. And I came. And he said, you know what? This has been the greatest thing that's happened to my family. Since I got here, God's done some amazing things in the lives of his children, his wife, etc. So better to be in God's will than in your will. You know, I'm just saying. And God will give you good things. He will bless you. So what are God's commands as we close this out? Verse 23, this is his commandment, in case you forgot, that we believe in the name of the son, his son, Jesus Christ, and get saved. And number two, that we love one another. Those are his commands. So you got to think about the first command. Do you know the love of Christ that saves you? If you don't, today's the day to get saved. How do you get saved? Lord Jesus, save me, and he shall. And then you become his son or daughter. And once you're his son or his daughter, commandment two kicks in. You gotta start loving everybody around you that's in the body of Christ. Not in words, but in deeds. He closes it out with verse 24 with some more sagacious advice. He says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. He's not talking about whether the person's a Christian or a non-Christian. He's talking about intimacy with Jesus. If you're intimate with Jesus, uh, that intimacy is directly related to how much you love other Christians, practically, by meeting their needs. Does your life, does my life, I had to stop and think about it, does my life, how I give to people in the body of Christ, uh, reflect that I'm keeping the commandments of Christ to love each other? Because if that's so, that shows that my relationship with him is vibrant. How's your relationship with Jesus? It's directly related to how you love other Christians around you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the clarity of the scriptures. May we be obedient to the scriptures and truly love each other as we're supposed to. And may that be a great point of witness to the world about us. And for those who have not yet come to Christ as Savior, might this be the day they get saved. In Jesus' name, amen.